0: chapter 8 part 3 of autobiography of theodore roosevelt this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org autobiography of theodore roosevelt chapter 8 the new york governorship part 3 the superintendent of insurance was not a man whose ill will the big life insurance companies cared to incur and company after company passed resolutions asking me to reappoint him, although in private some of the men who signed these resolutions nervously explained that they did not mean what they had written, and hoped I would remove the man. A citizen prominent in reform circles, marked by the Cato-like austerity of his reform professions, had a son who was a counsel for one of the insurance companies. The father was engaged in writing letters to the papers demanding in the name of uncompromising virtue that I should not only get rid of the superintendent of insurance, but in his place should appoint somebody or other personally offensive to Senator Platt, which last proposition, if adopted, would have meant that the superintendent of insurance would have stayed in, for the reasons I have already given. Meanwhile the son came to see me on behalf of the insurance company he represented, and told me that the company was anxious that there should be a change in the superintendency that if I really meant to fight, they thought they had influence with four of the State Senators, Democrats and Republicans, whom they could get to vote to confirm the man I nominated, but that they wished to be sure that I would not abandon the fight, because it would be a very bad thing for them if I started the fight and then backed down. I told my visitor that he need be under no apprehensions, that I would certainly see the fight through— A man who has much to do with that kind of politics which concerns both New York politicians and New York businessmen and lawyers is not easily surprised, and therefore I felt no other emotion than a rather sardonic amusement, when thirty-six hours later I read in the morning paper an open letter from the officials of the very company who had been communicating with me, in which they enthusiastically advocated the renomination of the superintendent." Shortly afterwards my visitor, the young lawyer, called me up on the telephone and explained that the officials did not mean what they said in this letter, that they had been obliged to write it for fear of the superintendent, but that if they got the chance they intended to help me get rid of him. I thanked him, and said I thought I could manage the fight by myself. I did not hear from him again, though his father continued to write public demands that I should practice pure virtue, undefiled and offensive. Meanwhile Senator Pratt declined to yield. I had picked out a man, a friend of his, who I believed would make an honest and competent official, and whose position in the organization was such that I did not believe the Senate would venture to reject him. However, up to the day before the appointment was to go to the Senate, Mr. Platt remained unyielding. I saw him that afternoon, and tried to get him to yield, but he said no, that if I insisted it would be a war to the knife, and my destruction, and perhaps the destruction of the party. I said I was very sorry, that I could not yield, and that if the war came it would have to come, and that next morning I should send in the name of the superintendent's successor. We parted, and soon afterwards I received from the man who was at that moment Mr. Platt's right-hand lieutenant, a request to know where he could see me that evening. I appointed the Union League club. My visitor went over the old ground, explained that the senator would under no circumstances yield, that he was certain to win in the fight— that my reputation would be destroyed, and that he wished to save me from such a lamentable smash-up as an ending to my career. I could only repeat what I had already said, and after half an hour of futile argument I rose and said that nothing was to be gained by further talk, and that I might as well go. My visitor repeated that I had this last chance, and that ruin was ahead of me if I refused it, whereas if I accepted everything would be made easy." I shook my head, and answered, "'There is nothing to add to what I have already said.' He responded, "'You have made up your mind?' And I said, "'I have.' He then said, "'You know it means your ruin?' And I answered, "'Well, we will see about that,' and walked toward the door. He said, "'You understand the fight will begin tomorrow and will be carried on to the bitter end?' I said, "'Yes,' and added, as I reached the door, "'Good-night.' Then, as the door opened, my opponent, or visitor, whichever one chooses to call him, whose face was as impassive and inscrutable as that of Mr. John Hamlin in a poker game, said, "'Hold on. We accept. Send in so-and-so, the man I had named. The senator is very sorry, but he will make no further opposition.' I never saw a bluff carried more resolutely through to the final limit. My success in the affair, coupled with the appointment of Messrs. Partridge and Hooker, secured me against further effort to interfere with my handling of the executive departments.' it was in connection with the insurance business that i first met mr george w perkins he came to me with a letter of introduction from the then speaker of the national house of representatives tom reed which ran mr perkins is a personal friend of mine whose straightforwardness and intelligence will commend to you whatever he has to say if you will give him proper opportunity to explain his business i have no doubt that what he will say will be worthy of your attention Mr. Perkins wished to see me with reference to a bill that had just been introduced in the legislature, which aimed to limit the aggregate volume of insurance that any New York State company could assume. There were then three big insurance companies in New York, the Mutual Life, Equitable, and New York Life. Mr. Perkins was a vice-president of the New York Life Insurance Company, and Mr. John A. McCall was its president. I had just finished my fight against the superintendent of insurance, whom I refused to continue in office. Mr. McCall had written me a very strong letter urging that he be retained, and had done everything he could to aid Senator Platt in securing his retention. The mutual life and equitable people had openly followed the same course, but in private had hedged. They were both backing the proposed bill. Mr. McCall was opposed to it, he was in california and just before starting thither had been told by the mutual life and equitable that the limitation bill was favoured by me and would be put through if such a thing were possible mr mccall did not know me and on leaving for california told mr perkins that from all he could learn he was sure i was bent on putting this bill through and that nothing he could say to me would change my view In fact, because he had fought so hard to retain the old insurance superintendent, he felt that I would be particularly opposed to anything he might wish done. As a matter of fact, I had no such feeling. I had been carefully studying the question. I had talked with the mutual life and equitable people about it, but was not committed to any particular course, and had grave doubts as to whether it was well to draw the line on size instead of on conduct. I was therefore very glad to see Perkins and get a new point of view." I went over the matter with a great deal of care and at considerable length, and after we had thrashed the matter out pretty fully, and Perkins had laid before me in detail the methods employed by Austria, Germany, Switzerland, and other European countries to handle their large insurance companies, I took the position that there undoubtedly were evils in the insurance business, but that they did not consist in insuring people's lives for that certainly was not an evil, and I did not see how the real evils could be eradicated by limiting or suppressing a company's ability to protect an additional number of lives with insurance. I therefore announced that I would not favour a bill that limited volume of business, and would not sign it if it were passed but that I favoured legislation that would make it impossible to place, through agents, policies that were ambiguous and misleading, or to pay exorbitant prices to agents for business, or to invest policyholders' money in improper securities, or to give power to officers to use the company's funds for their own personal profit. In reaching this determination I was helped by Mr. Loeb, then merely a stenographer in my office, but who had already attracted my attention, both by his efficiency and by his loyalty to his former employers, who were for the most part my political opponents. Mr. Loeb gave me much information about various improper practices in the insurance business. I began to gather data on the subject, with the intention of bringing about corrective legislation, for at that time I expected to continue in office as governor but in a few weeks I was nominated as vice-president, and my successor did nothing about the matter. So far as I remember, this was the first time the question of correcting evils in a business by limiting the volume of business to be done was ever presented to me, and my decision on the matter was on all fours with the position I have always since taken when any similar principle was involved. At the time when I made my decision about the limitation bill, I was on friendly terms with the mutual and equitable people who were back of it, whereas I did not know Mr. McCall at all, and Mr. Perkins only from hearing him discuss the bill. An interesting feature of the matter developed subsequently. Five years later, after the insurance investigations took place, the mutual life strongly encouraged the passage of a limitation bill, and because of the popular feeling developed by the exposure of the improper practices of the companies, this bill was generally approved.' Governor Hughes adopted the suggestion. Such a bill was passed by the legislature, and Governor Hughes signed it. This bill caused the three great New York companies to reduce markedly the volume of business they were doing. It threw a great many agents out of employment, and materially curtailed the foreign business of the companies, which business was bringing annually a considerable sum of money to this country for investment. In short, the experiment worked so badly that before Governor Hughes went out of office one of the very last bills he signed was one that permitted the life insurance companies to increase their business each year by an amount representing a certain percentage of the business they had previously done. This in practice within a few years practically annulled the limitation bill that had been previously passed. The experiment of limiting the size of business, of legislating against it merely because it was big, had been tried, and had failed so completely that the authors of the bill had themselves, in effect, repealed it. My action in refusing to try the experiment had been completely justified. As a sequel to this incident I got Mr. Perkins to serve on the Palisade Park Commission. At the time I was taking active part in the effort to save the Palisades from vandalism and destruction— by getting the states of New York and New Jersey jointly to include them in a public park. It is not easy to get a responsible and capable man of business to undertake such a task, which is unpaid, which calls on his part for an immense expenditure of time, money, and energy, which offers no reward of any kind, and which entails the certainty of abuse and misrepresentation. Mr. Perkins accepted the position, and has filled it for the last thirteen years, doing as disinterested, efficient, and useful a bit of public service as any man in the State has done throughout these thirteen years. The case of most importance, in which I clashed with Senator Platt, related to a matter of fundamental governmental policy, and was the first step I ever took toward bringing big corporations under effective governmental control. In this case I had to fight the Democratic machine as well as the Republican machine, for Senator Hill and Senator Platt were equally opposed to my action, and the big corporation men, the big business men back of both of them, took precisely the same view of these matters without regard to their party feeling on other points. What I did convulsed people at that time, and marked the beginnings of the efforts, at least in the eastern states, to make the great corporations equally responsible to popular wish and governmental command." but we have gone so far past the stage in which we were then that it now seems well-nigh incredible that there should have been any opposition at all to what I at that time proposed. The substitution of electric power for horse-power in the street-car lines of New York offered a fruitful chance for the most noxious type of dealings between businessmen and politicians. The franchises granted by New York were granted without any attempt to secure, from the grantees, returns, in the way of taxation or otherwise, for the value received. The fact that they were thus granted by improper favoritism, a favoritism which in many cases was unquestionably secured by downright bribery, led to all kinds of trouble. In return for the continuance of these improper favours to the corporations, politicians expected improper favours in the way of excessive campaign contributions, often contributed by the same corporation at the same time to two opposing parties. Before I became governor, a bill had been introduced into the New York legislature to tax the franchises of these street railways. It affected a large number of corporations, but particularly those in New York and Buffalo. It had been suffered to slumber undisturbed, as none of the people in power dreamt of taking it seriously, and both the Republican and Democratic machines were hostile to it. Under the rules of the New York legislature, a bill could always be taken up out of its turn, and passed if the governor sent in a special emergency message on its behalf. After I was elected governor, I had my attention directed to the franchise tax matter, looked into the subject, and came to the conclusion that it was a matter of plain decency and honesty that these companies should pay a tax on their franchises, inasmuch as they did nothing that could be considered a service rendered the public in lieu of a tax. This seemed to me, so evidently, the common sense and decent thing to do, that I was hardly prepared for the storm of protest and anger which my proposal aroused. Senator Platt and the other machine leaders did everything to get me to abandon my intention." talked the matter all over with them, and did my best to convert them to my way of thinking. Senator Platt, I believe, was quite sincere in his opposition. He did not believe in popular rule, and he did believe that big businessmen were entitled to have things their way. He profoundly distrusted the people, naturally enough, for the kind of human nature which a boss comes in contact with is not of an exalted type. He felt that anarchy would come if there was any interference with the system by which the people and mass were, under various necessary cloaks, controlled by the leaders in the political and business worlds. He wrote me a very strong letter of protest against my attitude, expressed in dignified, friendly, and temperate language, but using one word in a curious way. This was the word altruistic. He stated in his letter that he had not objected to my being independent in politics, because he had been sure that I had the good of the party at heart, and meant to act fairly and honourably, but that he had been warned, before I became a candidate, by a number of his business friends that I was a dangerous man because I was altruistic, and that he now feared that my conduct would justify the alarm thus expressed. I was interested in this, not only because Senator Platt was obviously sincere, but because of the way in which he used altruistic as a term of reproach, as if it was communistic or socialistic, the last being a word he did use to me when, as now and then happened, he thought that my proposals warranted fairly reckless vituperation. Senator Platt's letter ran in part as follows. "'When the subject of your nomination was under consideration, there was one matter that gave me real anxiety. I think you will have no trouble in appreciating the fact that it was not the matter of your independence.' I think we have got far enough along in our political acquaintance for you to see that my support in a convention does not imply subsequent demands, nor any other relation that may not reasonably exist for the welfare of the party. The thing that did bother me was this. I had heard from a good many sources that you were a little loose on the relations of capital and labor, on trusts and combinations, and, indeed, on those numerous questions which have recently arisen in politics affecting the security of earnings and the right of a man to run his business in his own way, with due respect, of course, to the Ten Commandments and the Penal Code. Or, to get at it even more clearly, I understand from a number of businessmen, and among them many of your own personal friends, that you entertained various altruistic ideas, all very well in their way, but which before they could safely be put into law needed very profound consideration. You have just adjourned a legislature which created a good opinion throughout the State." I congratulate you heartily upon this fact, because I sincerely believe, as everybody else does, that this good impression exists very largely as a result of your personal influence in the legislative chambers. But at the last moment, and to my very great surprise, you did a thing which has caused the business community of New York to wonder how far the notions of populism, as laid down in Kansas and Nebraska, have taken hold upon the Republican Party of the State of New York." In my answer I pointed out to the Senator that I had, as Governor, unhesitatingly acted, at Buffalo and elsewhere, to put down mobs, without regard to the fact that the professed leaders of labor furiously denounced me for so doing, but that I could no more tolerate wrong committed in the name of property than wrong committed against property. My letter ran in part as follows. I knew that you had just the feelings you describe. That is, apart from my impulsiveness, you felt that there was a justifiable anxiety among men of means, and especially men representing large corporate interests, lest I might feel too strongly on what you term the altruistic side in matters of labor and capital, as regards the relations of the state to great corporations. I know that when parties divide on such issues, as Bryanism. The tendency is to force everybody into one of two camps, and to throw out entirely men like myself, who are as strongly opposed to populism in every stage, as the greatest representative of corporate wealth, but who also feel strongly that many of these representatives of enormous corporate wealth have themselves been responsible for a portion of the condition against which Bryanism is in ignorant revolt." i do not believe that it is wise or safe for us as a party to take refuge in mere negation and to say that there are no evils to be corrected it seems to me that our attitude should be one of correcting the evils and thereby showing that whereas the populists socialists and others really do not correct the evils at all or else only do so at the expense of producing others in aggravated form On the contrary, we Republicans hold the just balance, and set ourselves as resolutely against improper corporate influence on the one hand as against demagogy and mob rule on the other. I understand perfectly that such an attitude of moderation is apt to be misunderstood, when passions are greatly excited and when victory is apt to rest with the extremists on one side or the other, yet I think it is in the long run the only wise attitude. I appreciate absolutely what Mr. Platt had said— that any applause I get will be too evanescent for a moment's consideration. I appreciate absolutely that the people who now loudly approve of my action in the franchise tax bill will forget all about it in a fortnight, and that, on the other hand, the very powerful interests adversely affected will always remember it. The leaders urged upon me that I personally could not afford to take this action, for under no circumstances could I ever again be nominated for any public office, as no corporation would subscribe to a campaign fund if I was on the ticket, and that they would subscribe most heavily to beat me. And when I asked if this were true of Republican corporations, the cynical answer was made that the corporations that subscribed most heavily to the campaign funds subscribed impartially to both party organizations. Under all these circumstances it seemed to me there was no alternative but to do what I could to secure the passage of the bill. These two letters, written in the spring of 1899, express clearly the views of the two elements of the Republican Party, whose hostility gradually grew until it culminated thirteen years later. In 1912 the political and financial forces of which Mr. Platt had once been the spokesman usurped the control of the party machinery, and drove out of the party the men who were loyally endeavouring to apply the principles of the founders of the party to the needs and issues of their own day. I had made up my mind that if I could get a show in the legislature the bill would pass, because the people had become interested, and the representatives would scarcely dare to vote the wrong way. Accordingly, on April twenty seventh, 1899, I sent a special message to the Assembly, certifying that the emergency demanded the immediate passage of the bill. The machine leaders were bitterly angry, and the Speaker actually tore up the message without reading it to the Assembly. That night they were busy trying to arrange some device for the defeat of the bill, which was not difficult, as the session was about to close. At seven the next morning I was informed of what had occurred. At eight I was in the capital at the executive chamber, and sent in another special message, which opened as follows. I learned that the emergency measure which I sent last evening to the Assembly on behalf of the franchise tax bill has not been read. I therefore send hereby another message on the subject— I need not impress upon the Assembly the need of passing this bill at once. I sent this message to the Assembly by my secretary, William J. Youngs, afterwards United States District Attorney of King's, with an intimation that if this were not promptly read I should come up in person and read it. Then, as so often happens, the opposition collapsed, and the bill went through both houses with a rush. I had in the house staunch friends, such as Regis Post and Alfred Cooley, men of character and courage, Who would have fought to a finish had the need arisen. End of chapter eight, part three.